This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The opinions expressed on this WebmasterRadio.fm program are those of the host, guests, and callers, and do not reflect those of the staff, management, or advertisers of WebmasterRadio.fm. Any rebroadcast or retransmission of this program without the express written consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot-button Internet legal topics of the day. From Capitol Hill to the White House, the Courthouse to the State House, the FTC to the State Attorney General. This is your home for the latest on Internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business, foreign and domestic, and have your questions answered by our group of legal experts. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning, this is Bennett Kelly. Welcome to another edition of Cyber Law and Business Report. We're broadcasting live from the Internet Law Center here in Santa Monica, and we're continuing our Miami Book Fair series, and we have with us today Beth Macy. She is the author of the widely acclaimed and best-selling books, Factory Man, How One Furniture Maker Battled Offshoring, Stayed Local, and Helped Save an American Town, and True Vine, Two Brothers, A Kidnapping, and A Mother's Quest, A True Story of the Jim Crow South. Um, and um, she's here calling in from Roanoke on her new book, Dope Sick Dealers, Doctors, and the Drug Company That Addicted America. So thank you for joining us. It's great to be here. Thanks, Bennett. And uh, your book is uh, has been described by the New York Times Book Review as a harrowing, deeply compassionate dispatch from the heart of a national emergency, a masterwork of narrative journalism, interlacing stories of communities in crisis with dark histories of corporate greed and regulatory indifference. And um, I noticed in the news in either yesterday or today, the, uh, the latest numbers on overdose deaths um, for 2017. And there were 70,000 overdose deaths in 2017, 48,000 due to opioids. And uh, I looked at the um, numbers from the AIDS crisis. And in 1995, the, the highest number reported was 48,000 mm. um, AIDS deaths. And, and Looking back at that time, I think you know, while there was a certain period where there was definitely a lack of inact- a lack of action, 
you know, as was as depicted in the band played on, that there was a, a sense by a certain point that this was a crisis. And mm-hmm. do you get the sense that there's that awareness now that we're 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 in a comparable crisis, or does not not be gripping people to the full extent? Well, it's it's kind of one of the deals where if you have a Google or said to opioid epidemic, you get scores of articles emailed every day, right? And it's in the news every single day, and there's a little piece of it. But no, I think that it is not quite understood yet that we are in the middle of the worst drug epidemic in the history of our nation and that our leadership from state federal, local, is not yet seeing it with the urgency that it deserves to be seen. And you have a a, a quote from your book, drug overdose is the leading cause of death for Americans under the age of 50, killing more people than guns or car accidents at a rate higher than the HIV epidemic at its peak. And it's just astounding. And and I read, looking at your book, I'm, I think of Jonathan Kozol, um, death at an early age, that there, there was this thing that was right in front of us, but we just weren't seeing. Right, right. And and if you go back to these first communities that I write about in the first third of the book, and this is basically central Appalachia, but it stands in for any distressed rural community where the jobs were going away. They've been dealing with this crisis since the late 1990s. OxyContin was introduced in 1996. Um, the company hired an army of reps that circulated throughout the nation, but they bought data that showed them where opioids were being prescribed the most already, and those tended to be in places where there were lots of workplace injuries and higher rates of disability. So they sent their reps out to those towns using prescriber data that they purchased. And they made the case that OxyContin was safer to use and it was better and it now allowed you to, you know, the the miracle of uninterrupted sleep. And, um, of course, that is kind of how we got into this. One of the main reasons of how we got into this crisis is the criminal misbranding of this drug and sort of the flipping of the narrative that for 100 years doctors knew that it wasn't safe to prescribe opioids, that you should only prescribe them in cases of severe pain, cancer, and end of life. And Purdue and other opioid makers helped flip the narrative that opioids were now safe to use uh, for all kinds of pain, moderate pain, back pain, TMJ, osteoarthritis. And and that's kind of what led to this crisis. And it's an interesting fact because um, we have this notion of of people who have – we have this whole war on drugs and that somehow the people who are be fallen victim to drugs, it's, it's due to some failing on their own. And what, what your narrative points out is that these were people who were duped, who actually were legitimately using a product that, that addicted them. Mm-hmm. Four out of five people who become addicted to heroin start with prescription drugs. Now, not all of them were they prescribed to them. Some of them, you know, they stole from their parents or grandparents' medicine cabinets, or perhaps they bought illicitly on the streets. But largely, uh, according to the experts I interviewed, uh, 
the nationalization of this huge deluge of opioid pills was because the FDA allowed Purdue Pharma to make this squishy claim that its brand new time release mechanism made it uh, was was believed to reduce the liability of abuse. And um, you know it was a it was a nebulous claim. It was vague. And then Purdue and its reps took that vague claim and, and, and using old data and um, bad data made it into a, quote, certainty. I mean, it's, it's a confusing concept because and on one hand, the FDA is, is vigilant about you know, policing false medical claims and, and the Federal Trade Commission as well. But you know, here such a nebulous claim was allowed to be made without science backing it up. How how did that happen? Mm-hmm. Well, no studies were done. Um, there, Purdue actually had um, cited one of its own studies uh, showing that it was possible to get sixty eight percent of the drug all in one fell swoop if you um, circumvented the time release mechanism and crushed it all and um, which users immediately figured out how to do, right? They, you can put the pill in your mouth, suck off the coating, that was the time release mechanism, and then they could crush and snort or inject it. And even according to Purdue's own studies, uh, that was possible. But, you know, later it came out that they quashed any data that was, um, that might have pointed to people are getting addicted to this, um, and they only, you know, included, uh, uh, things that that buttress this nebulous claim, and the FDA allowed them to do it. And uh, we'll just say simply that the person who signed off on the new drug application went to work for Purdue Pharma two years later. Wow, um, the, the the whole revolving door problem. Now there were two troubling things about OxyContin, and one was that they they lied about its addictive effect. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the other was also was how they marketed it in terms of its you know its, its lasting effect, and uh, which which also led to increased addiction. Could you explain that? Sure. Well, so they hired this army of sales reps um, to go out and you know preach data that wasn't scientifically buttressed. <laughs> And then um, they hired uh, 5,000 doctors, nurses, and pharmacists, uh, sent them on free trips to resorts to become trained speakers. And the reps plied doctors with all sorts of sort of free incentives to listen in exchange for listening to their spiel. And we know from data about rep pitches that uh, you're, you're twice as likely to prescribe a drug if, you've, if the pitch has been made to you. And so that's what happened. Um, you know, some of the early doctors who were trying to warn the company saying, I know you say it's, it's not addictive, but I've got kids passing out in the high school library of OxyContin overdose. They begged the company to stop the aggressive marketing um, for non-cancer pain and to reformulate it like another um, opioid maker, the makers of Talon, had done years earlier to make it less prone to abuse. But that reformulation didn't occur until 2010, four years after the drug was released. 14 years, I'm sorry. That reformulation didn't occur until 2010, 14 years after the drug was initially released. And and three years after they pled guilty. 
to misleading the public about its risk. That's right. That's right. Um, but, you know, uh, there, there are so many points in the narrative of, of this epidemic when it could have been turned down. And, you know, one was if they had reformulated it earlier. Another was if the federal government had then, uh, um, <clears throat> in 07, when they pled guilty, had forbidden Purdue Pharma from um, doing business with the government. But instead, Purdue had hired Rudy Giuliani to thwart the investigation. And then when that didn't happen to to handle the some of the negotiations for the plea agreement, Giuliani talked the DOJ into um, leveling the punishments against the holding company, which was Purdue Frederick. So OxyContin continued, uh, the sales continued to rise after 07. Amazing. Now, you, you start your book talking about going to an interview of a drug dealer, um, Ronnie Jones, mm-hmm. who um, you credit with over single-handedly um, sparking a wave of heroin addiction in in, West, in western part of Virginia. Um, and tell us a little bit yeah, about it's how in the northern uh, Shenandoah Valley part of Virginia. And I think I'm pretty careful. The cops and the prosecutors credited him with this, but I think it's such a more gray story than than that. I mean, obviously the addiction was already there before he started bringing it in, and obviously the criminal justice system sort of set him up in that when felons get out of prison, it's so hard for them to get work. And uh, when he starts dealing again, uh, now he's in this farm community, which is not a distressed community in general, but there are people already doing pills. And the pills are getting expensive and hard to get. This is around 2013. And so Jones remembers being in the break room of this chicken plant and people are doing pills. And somebody says to him, look, if you wanna deal drugs again, after it turns out you can't find a job because you're a felon, you need to start bringing heroin in in bulk. And so he gets a connection with um, the cartel that's like bricking heroin up in Harlem and he starts bringing it in bulk to this little town. And of course, they're happy to send it down because they can sell it for twice as much as they would sell it in the city in rural areas. And the rural people are happy to have it because now they don't have to drive to Baltimore where it's dangerous uh, you know, an hour and a half away, and they can just buy it from people like Ronnie and his lieutenants. And so Ronnie leads to a spike in addiction in that that community. In a heroin addiction, yeah, a yes. lot of the people who had been who had already been addicted to opioid pills, uh, then be then start taking heroin, and, and and that's something I saw everywhere in all kinds of communities that I reported in, and. You know, the, when, as soon as the pills got hard to get, uh, you know, the reformulation of OxyContin in 2010, the, the upscheduling of hydrocodone products, I think that was in um, 14. Um, check me on that. I might, might be slightly a year off on that. But the pills got expensive and hard to get, and the dealers started bringing heroin in, knowing that the fear of becoming dope sick portended one hell of a business model. And that people would do almost anything not to be dope sick. And, um, and you know, they would see that heroin powder looked just like the crushed up pills. So they would all start with snorting it. And that didn't seem like a bad thing. That didn't seem that scary. It looked just the same. And then after a while, the snorting wasn't enough. And, and you know, somebody taught them how to inject it for a more euphoric rush. And, you know, and then they need more and more. 
um, and that's you know unfortunately the 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 trajectory and so many other people that I interviewed stories. And just for the the unacquainted, dope sick is the, the the basically the withdrawal symptoms you feel when you do you don't you don't have access to to the drug. Exactly. Yeah, and that's what users call it, dope sick. I don't want to be dope sick. I mean, they all say it's like the worst flu times a thousand. Uh, it's restless leg, diarrhea, vomiting, nausea, sweats. Um, like the worst flu and um, they're very driven by almost this outsized fear that they're going to be dope sick so if they know their dealer isn't coming in until Thursday and it's Tuesday and they have X number of bags they'll sort of you know uh, apportion them out so that they have enough to get to Thursday and uh, it's just sort of their life becomes the brain becomes hijacked by the, by the, by the fear of becoming dope sick that's why I call the book that because it seemed like a really important concept that a lot of people still don't understand so Ronnie Jones who contributes to this wave in um, this Appalachian community gets 23 years in federal prison and then you have the three executives of OxyContin's parent who plead guilty to a felony uh, and they get 400 hours community service yeah, actually, the executives pled uh, guilty to a misdemeanor version of uh, a criminal misbranding charge. The company itself, or rather the holding company, as I described before, produced Frederick, uh, pleads guilty to a single felony charge. So important distinction. Um, and But you're right. None of the executives went to jail. The judge let the parents who had lost children to OxyContin overdose come and testify and on a rainy day, and they had held, had a little protest outside of the courthouse. The executives had asked if they could go in through the rear door of the courthouse to avoid it, and the judge said, no, you can come in the front just like everyone else. And then he let the parents testify about the, the harm that this drug had caused to their families. It was quite a moving scene. And you, nobody you, went to jail. And you tell the story of one parent who lost a child who actually brought the ashes of that child. Yeah, her name is Lena, a little tiny woman, about four feet ten, and she went up and she said, Jail is too good for these guys, but I beg you, beg you, judge, please. And then as she was exiting the witness stand she pulled out this little mini urn of her son Randy's ashes and she shook it at them and said this is your drug Oxycontin and this is what it did to my family very chilling scene she actually came she's in her 70s now and her husband had just passed away in July and my book came out in uh, early August and she came up for my book launch I'd never met her in person I just talked to her on the phone and she brought the urn with her uh, to my book launch event, very moving. And she also brought a 10-year-old adopted son whom she had fostered and then adopted. And he was an opioid orphan. You know, his mother, had been, he had been removed from his parents' custody because of opioid addiction. And that's how she's kind of going on without her son, Randy. She adopted a boy who's now 10, and she's in her early 70s and now a widow. And one thing that comes out in your book, and I guess it also ties somewhat to your prior book, is at least initially this epidemic is happening disproportionately 
in rural America. And, and what do you attribute that to? Well, because they bought that prescribing data that showed them which doctors in the country were already prescribing the most competing opioids, which at the time were immediate release, like Lortab, Percocet, Vicodin, mm-hmm. those happened to be in places where there were lots of uh, incidents of legitimate workplace injuries. So uh, extractive, coal mining, hard factory work, like furniture making, textile Textile making, logging in Machias, Maine, uh, uh, fish, fishing, um, places where there were legitimate workplace injuries. And because of that, places where there were high numbers of uh, high rates of people on disability. So if you look at Lee County, which I feature in the heart of central Appalachia, the westernmost county in Virginia, um, right now 57% of men who are working age are unemployed. So a lot of the jobs went away. Um, opioids were prescribed in that county 300 to 600% the average rate in the early years of OxyContin um, because the doctors targeted these areas where there were already legitimate instances of painkillers. But the difference with OxyContin was it was much stronger than these other competing opioids. And um, people who had, you know, there's a minor I write about named Fane McCauley, he had been injured numerous times in the mines and had taken opioids prior, but they were lower dose opioids, and he had been able to get off of them uh, at times before. But once it was OxyContin, it turned him into a non-functioning person. So at the end of his life, things are happening to him like um, he loses his farm, he loses his family, his daughter has to move his wife to Texas. He ends up murdered in a field uh, from a drug deal gone awry, his daughter suspects, although it was never confirmed. And when I said, what was your dad like when, as you were growing up? She said, my memory of him was he worked. He worked in the mines, and on the weekends, he had a side business where he hauled lime around in his truck to, to farmers. And he had a little side plot of land that he farmed. And he and and, he, and his third job was he was the rec league uh, referee in the town of Jonesville. I mean, everybody knew him. He was a great guy. But this oxycontin, according to his relatives, kind of turned him into a monster. He was selling family heirlooms. Um, you know, he he would buy things on a credit card and then pawn for drug money. Um, he was bankrupting the entire family and his daughter, uh, for his mother's safety, her mother's safety, you know, brought her back to Texas from Virginia just to keep her safe. And then they waited for the phone call that Mr. McCauley had died. And sure enough, it came. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll have more with Beth Macy, the author of Dope Sick. After these messages, you're listening to Cyberlaw and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. Stay tuned for more of the Cyberlaw and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Do you look at the task of ranking your site at the top of the search engines like you would climbing the top of Mount Everest? It doesn't have to be. 
TopSEOs.com knows how hard that climb can be, and they can make top ranking a reality. Top SEOs send you to only the right search vendors and agencies that they know will work for you. Since 2002, TopSEOs.com has reviewed and researched the best search engine marketing agencies and solutions providers. Don't risk the cost of falling off the proverbial peak of search rankings. Let Top SEOs give you peace of mind. TopSEOs.com, the independent authority on search vendors. Ready to do a podcast for your business? Make that podcast elevate to enterprise level. Let WebmasterRadio.fm expedite and execute your podcast to build your brand and broaden your customer base. WebmasterRadio.fm has worked with the world's biggest tech brands, Google, Yahoo, and Bing, and have worked with fast-growing brands like ShipStation and GoDaddy. Now it's your turn. Contact brasco at wmr.fm and rush your enterprise-level podcast into production at a very reasonable rate. Email brasco at wmr.fm. Are you looking for the best in WordPress speed, security, and scalability? WP Engine is a digital experience platform for WordPress, powering digital experiences for large brands around the world. With easy-to-use site management tools and powerful do-it-your-way development features, WP Engine gives you the flexibility to build it your way. Improve your SEO and conversion rates with a faster site on WP Engine. Learn more on WPEngine.com. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on WebmasterRadio.fm. And we're back and we're talking with Beth Macy. She's the author of Dope Sick, Dealers, Doctors, and the Drug Company that Addicted America. And she will be appearing at the MME Book Fair on November 18th. And um, so we're thrilled to have her. And before we left, she was telling the story of uh, a victim of the opioid crisis who at one point had been a vital member of a community including being a referee at the area um, football games, but succumbed to addiction through OxyContin and eventually led him to a path that led to death. And um, we were talking about how this was really impacting rural America. It was because of you had these people who were working in these extractive or um, type of industries that, tend to be more rural um, where they were having these workplace injuries. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, and another thing is um, people quickly figured out that you could make a whole lot of money if you sold your OxyContin, right? So maybe you'd lost your job at a textile plant um, and and you had been working in your factory for decades before you lost your job. Maybe you were in your early 60s, you had some back pain, and maybe you went to your doctor and said, oh, my back pain's getting worse. I think I might try that new drug everybody's talking about. And then you could take some of it and you could sell the rest and it would go for a dollar a milligram on the street. So it became like the new moonshine, a various, very dangerous way to earn a living, uh, kind of a side hustle the way moonshine had been in earlier years after work disappeared. Um, I interviewed a teacher who said she was asking a bunch of middle schoolers what, what they wanted to be when they grew up. And one boy said, I want to be a drawer. And she said, 
what do you mean? You want to be an artist? He said, no, I want to be a drawer, someone who draws disability. It was the only thing he could imagine because it was what he saw his parents and grandparents doing to earn a living, wow. drawing disability. Now, you, we, you told the story of the um, the person who died, you know, the coach just before the break, and a number of the people you interviewed did not live to see the publication of your book. Yeah. Some people didn't even live for me to get home and type up my interview notes. I mean, that was, you know, I would interview somebody and they'd be in recovery. I remember this one guy, Jesse, who was just so bright eyed. He was the town maintenance worker in Big Stone Gap, Virginia. And uh, he and his wife came up with this agreement that while he had been an opioid um, addicted, pill addicted person, um, and had relapsed a number of times. They had this agreement between them that she would allow him to smoke marijuana, um, and she would, but she would drug test him every month. And if marijuana came up, that was okay. But if anything stronger, like if an opioid came up, she would leave him. And I just remember thinking, this guy is really on the ball. He's he's figured it out. It's maybe not the perfect uh, solution, but you know it works for them. It's a harm reduction strategy, right? There is actually data showing that uh, in states where marijuana is legal, um, there are lower uh, rates of overdose as well as uh, opioid prescribing. But anyways, I was feeling pretty hopeful about Jesse, and he just seemed like bright-eyed and smart, smart, smart. And he said to me, if, if she ever figures out she don't need me, I'm screwed. And it was just so clear he loved his wife so much. And, you know, and I was going on. I had a bunch of other interviews to do, and so I hadn't typed up my notes yet. And lo and behold, a few days later, I get a call from somebody in that community that said, Jesse relapsed on pills. And rather than face his wife and the knowledge that, you know, she had said she would leave him, he went to the woods and shot and killed himself. Wow. It's another one of these deaths, deaths of despair that we hear about. You know, the economist Case and Deaton published this bombshell study in 2015, which was really the first time anybody had put together all of the data and said, look, in America, for the first time in our history, we have a declining uh, life expectancy. And it's because largely of opioid overdose, but also all drug overdose deaths, suicide, uh, which sometimes it runs parallel to the drug addiction, People can't stand it any longer, and they end their lives. And also, you know, alcohol-related uh, cirrhosis and things like that. Right. Now, there is the issue of our approach to this problem and whether or not we are actually addressing it in a way that can actually achieve that objective. And I guess it, it's the whole debate about is this a you treat this as is this a criminal problem? Is this a health problem? Is it both? Right, right. We all say addiction is a chronic relapsing disease, and then I've heard so many prosecutors and police officers say we can't arrest our way out of this, and yet um, we're still very much as a you know country, the government is still very much operating this war on drugs. You know, Trump wants to amp it back up. Jeff Sessions wants to amp it back up. Um, Trump blames Obama's cutting back on impris- imprisoning nonviolent uh, drug offenders. But, you know, uh, 
and he talks about executing drug dealers, but most of the drug dealers in my book were addicted people themselves dealing to support their habits so they wouldn't get dope sick. And they're like tree trimmers and uh, factory workers and cheerleaders, former high school cheerleaders and football players and basketball players, and that's who we're going to execute. Um, I think it's really clear if you look at European countries that have looked at a decriminalization uh, model, they have among the lowest drug use rates in the world. Now, it, so that works. We know it works. We just don't have the political will to um, take all that money we're spending on the war on drugs and prisons and move that into treatment. Is this spike happening outside of our borders as well? Is it happening in Europe? Uh, largely, no. It's not happening in Europe um, because they didn't buy into the pain as the fifth vital sign that was pushed by Big Pharma here. So, I mean, if you have surgery in France, for instance, they're not going to send you home with 30 OxyContin. If you have a simple case of bronchitis, as one of the young women I profiled here from Roanoke, Virginia did, and she went to an urgent care center in 2012, they're not going to send you home with two 30-day opioid prescriptions, uh, one cough syrup with codeine and the other hydrocodone for sore throat pain. That's not going to happen there. They're going to maybe give you some Tylenol and aspirin, and you're going to be told that, you know, pain is part of life. We don't want you to be super uncomfortable. But in general, uh, European co countries operate the way the United States did throughout most of the 1900s, only using opioids because of, we knew they were addictive uh, for end of life, cancer, and very severe pain, post-surgery, things like that. But we're still, our surgeons are still prescribing um, 50% more opioids than need to be prescribed after surgeries. Now, there are certain models for addiction, one of them being the AA or you know, type of a model that you know, has proven some level of success, in, at least in dealing with alcohol. But how how is it in dealing with opioid addiction? Yeah, so not nearly as effective. Uh, the AA success rate, the, let me just say abstinence only success rate, about six to 10%. Um, whereas medication assisted treatment, and um, I'm talking specifically about buprenorphine and methadone have been proven over and over in numerous studies going back to the 80s when it was first um, uh, being studied. Um, to prevent overdose death, overdose or, or relapse, overdose death, relapse, and criminal involvement by 50 to 60 percent. But there's a lot of resistance among 12-step um, communities. They believe it's, um, it's you know, because it's not abstinence-based. It's treating a drug addiction with another drug. But over and over in my book, I saw people just not be able to do it without it. So they would lose their access or they would decide on their own or their mom would send them to an out-of-state rehab. Most rehabs in our country don't allow MAT. And they would get sent, and they would either complete the program, check out, and then they would go almost immediately back to using the same amount that they used before. At that point, they were opioid naive, and then they would overdose, and some of them died. Some of them, one young woman who was uh, 27 was started weaning herself on Suboxone, uh, which is buprenorphine and uh, naloxone combined. Um, it's a weak opioid. It's a maintenance drug. 
uh, if used correctly, you don't get high off of it, but, and you can get your life to get back together. And people, I mean, story after story, people using it correctly with counseling, they really can get better off this drug. But so anyways, against her doctor's wishes, she started cutting her Suboxone dosage in half because she so wanted to go to this abstinence-only treatment facility. I mean, she didn't have the informed consent. She didn't know all the data. And, or maybe she knew it and she just chose to look the other way. But I know her, her dad firmly believes if she had kept taking um, the, the medicine that she was on, and if Virginia had been a Medicaid expansion state then, um, she would still be alive today because she relapsed even before she was able to go there. She didn't last but a day off of this drug, and she relapsed and died. And why is it that relapses are so fatal? Um, well, because of this idea that if they have been clean for a certain period of time, they're opioid naive, so if they go back to the same dosage, um, they're then more likely to uh, uh, succumb. And, of course, now we have fentanyl infecting the supply, and fentanyl is 50 to 100 times stronger than heroin. So, And you don't know if the heroin you're buying off the street has fentanyl in it or a lot. That's, that's why you're now hearing about things like fentanyl test strips, so that users can protect themselves. They can see how much fentanyl is in it, and then they can um, adjust the amount that they're taking um, accordingly. And, and so you, you have this problem, but then you have a, a, a system that doesn't want to dispense drugs, um, you know, particularly given that this whole problem has largely been housed in law enforcement. Right, and you also have doctors not being um, not being too excited about becoming wavered to prescribe buprenorphine. Um, there's, the doctors that do are so overworked. They have long waiting lists. I've seen everything from three weeks to two-year waiting lists. So there aren't enough doctors willing to become, you know, wavered to prescribe uh, buprenorphine or to go into addiction medicine. I'm hopeful that the younger generation that's grown up seeing this epidemic around them, I've met some medical students recently that are really becoming activists for this and are already wavered and they really want to go out and make a difference. I'm hoping that will help. But I gave a talk to a bunch of physicians recently and I said, <laughs> I was a little worked up that day and I said, I feel like anybody who took a free item from pharma anytime in their career should feel morally obligated uh, to become wavered to help. You were part of this problem whether you knew it directly or not. You know, I know you were lied to by these reps, but you know, it came clear pretty quickly who was abusing the drugs and who wasn't. And you're morally, I think you should be morally compelled to help us get out of this epidemic that you helped us get into. And no, out um, of that fly. <laughs> it, it was like you could hear crickets. It was, it was, I'm not sure I'll be welcomed back, let's just say. <laughs> That you get your fee in advance, but um, so <laughs> th there's a segment in your book where you, you talk about a conversation you have with a judge, and who asks you, "Give me what is something to be hopeful about in this area?" Yeah, Judge Moore, he's a drug court judge in rural um, Lebanon, uh, Virginia. Um, well, let me know, stop you there yep. before you, you respond to his question. Um, do, yeah. Drug courts, are, are those effective? Mm -hmm. 
you know, they are. They have even drug courts that don't allow MAT, and I really believe they firm, firmly that they should allow MAT. But even the drug courts that don't allow MAT, because drug court is so intensive. I mean, these probation officers and drug court administrators are checking in on these people every day, and they have this kind of built-in carrot stick model where you know, if you do well this week, uh, you know, we're gonna we're gonna you know, help you a little bit more. But if you do poorly, we're going to put you back in jail for three days. And, and, and you're, you're going to find out right away that that's not where you want to be. And so they have, you know, really intensive um, approach. And it's been shown to be successful. Um, you know, n- not, not 100% successful, not even 50% successful, but more successful than abstinence only and even just counseling drug courts because of that stick, the carrot and the stick approach model has been shown to work. Drug courts with MAT have even higher efficacy rates. And um, so Judge Moore was asking me what to feel hopeful about. And poor guy, I'd watched him over the course of a year and a half. I watched his hair go from salt and pepper to white and people coming up to him in the grocery store and begging them, begging him to put their adult children into drug court when they didn't even have charges against him, which of course he can't just put everyone in the community with addiction in a drug court. And he says to me, a reporter, a lowly reporter, what can I, you know, Beth, you've been studying this. You've been all over the country studying this. What can I have to feel helpful about? He said, I can't wait for your book to come out. Maybe I'll know what the answer is. And then he chuckled, but he seemed close to tears, truly. And um, so I told him about some things I had seen where harm reduction uh, programs were making inroads where treatment was being allowed more um, widely. And, you know, there are some real success stories, including, you know, up in Rhode Island, Massachusetts, and Vermont, where they have made treatment almost available on demand, where they have syringe exchanges, where people who are living maybe homeless and are just coming in off the streets and they're afraid to go to ERs, but they'll go to the syringe exchange where people will help get them connected with services. They'll help get them tested for hepatitis C and HIV. And ideally, always ideally, eventually when they're ready, get them into treatment. Um, you're seeing the, the overdose uh, numbers start to go down. So we know what works. We're just, we don't have the political will or the leadership uh, state national, local, to put these harm reduction and treatment measures widely into place yet. And, you know, I'm hoping, you know, eventually we got the response to the HIV AIDS crisis, right? We made treatment on demand available. Mm -hmm. But right now in America, if if you're in a non-Medicaid expansion state, you're going to have a really hard time accessing treatment such that I see, I saw out in far Southwest Virginia, uh, people dying of untreated hepatitis C, even people who had licked their addiction, but they had gotten hepatitis from shared needles from years earlier, and they had no access to health care, die of untreated hepatitis C. Wow. Of course, at the end of their lives, they're in hospitals. We're paying hundreds of thousands on their care, but we couldn't get them this access to preventive or uh, even you know, acute treatment in the early phases of their disease. I mean, right, because that was Obamacare. Yeah. Sad story. Um, we only have a few minutes left. You're, you're going yeah. to be on, you're going to Miami. Any other places you go on your tour? 
You want to uh, highlight? Yeah, I'm kind of going all over. <laughs> uh, starting to wind down. Book came in August. I, I guess I wind down. I've got several speeches scheduled into next year. But um, let's see, where else am I going to be uh, before I go to Miami? Um, I am going to be at the Texas Book Festival this weekend, uh, speaking on a panel October 27th. Um, I'm going to be in Roanoke speaking uh, at an event November 8th. I am going to be speaking a bunch in, um, I've actually been invited to speak to Google and a bunch of technology uh, leaders and um, HHS leaders in Washington on November 13th. I'll be speaking at the Arlington Library that evening. Be speaking to a governor, Governor of Virginia, doing a housing conference on, on November 14th, and um, at a Senator Warner is. Um, I'll be speaking the day before the Mike Miami Book Festival again in Roanoke, Virginia, at a women's conference he's putting on November 17th. And uh, if people want to follow you, you're on Twitter at Paper Girl Macy. Is there a story behind that? <laughs> Well, thank you for asking. It's kind of silly. I started it right at the beginning of the internet, right? And uh, I, I, you know, I was a longtime newspaper reporter, so that's where Paper Girl comes in. Oh, okay. But also the first, the first, my very first job as an employee of anything, I was nine years old and I had a paper route and I was the only girl in my town to deliver the newspaper. This was like in the 70s, right? And, um, you know, I always tell students when I'm in, uh, talk, teaching, um, you know, I learn how to interview people by just talking to the people on my paper route. And, um, you know, I, I just, I'm, I think fondly about the role of newspapers in our democracy and I worry about it and uh, just whatever I can do to uplift uh, newspapers and journalism in general, I'm all about. And I'm, I'm proud of being a paper girl. So I guess well. that's, that's the reason behind it. Well, I'm following Paper Girl Macy, and you should too. And be sure to check out her book, Dope Sick, Dealers, Doctors, and the Drug Company That Addicted America. And see, check her out at the Miami Book Fair on November 18th. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Ben. I really enjoyed it. It was a pleasure. And um, that's all we have for this week. Join us next week for another edition of Cyberlaw and Business Report. Check out our show notes at cyberlawradio.wordpress.com and follow us on Twitter at Cyberlaw Radio. Until next week, this is Bennett Kelly. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. 
and you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.